0: We come to a passage this morning that deals with a passage that I have preached before. This is one of the things that you deal with when you preach through one of the Gospels. You're preaching verse by verse. I have preached John's version of the woman coming, Mary coming and anointing the head and the feet of Jesus. Uh, And so I've actually preached it at least once, maybe twice. And so I thought, how do I come again and preach this same text the same way? As I have before, and uh, I was I thought, I just I just don't want to do that. And I prayed and I said, God, would you show me, Lord, a different perspective on this? And I was reminded of what uh, a theologian, I don't remember who was the first to say it, but he, he it might have been Spurgeon. But he talked about uh, the word of God being like a diamond or a precious gem. And it's not like you just pick it up and look at it. And see only one thing, but you take it and as you turn it and you look, the light reflects and refracts through it in different ways as you turn it. And I thought about, you know, when it, when a girl gets engaged and she comes in and she says, oh, I'm engaged. She doesn't want you simply to say, oh, nice ring. What she wants you to do is she wants you to take the ring and hold it up to the light and twist it and turn it and look at it and gawk over it. And that's what I want us to do with the word of God today. I want us to come to it and never be content to say, that's it. I believe there's one original meaning and from the writer to an original audience. But I think for us today, there are many applications and many perspectives. And so today I come to you dependent on the Holy Spirit to be our teacher. Is that okay with you? All right. Y'all are quiet today. Y'all tired? Y'all stay up and watch that guy jump across the San Francisco Bay or whatever he did last night, Red Bull thing, watch the ball drop. I stayed up, I'm tired, so we'll get through it together, all right? Well, let's, let's look at this together. I've titled this sermon this morning, The Perfect Storm. The Perfect Storm, and the reason I've titled it this is because I want us to look at it, rather from the perspective of Mary coming in and anointing and what true worship is, I want us instead to look at it from the perspective of Judas, Because what Mark does in his version of this story in the gospel is he takes this story and he flanks it on either side. He bookends it with the chief priests and the scribes looking for a way to arrest and kill Jesus. And then at the end, Judas going to them and agreeing to betray him. So I want us to look at it from that perspective. But as I studied it that way, I couldn't help but to see there were several things that led up to his betrayal. We know about the betrayal, but we don't often see what happened going into it. And I think for us, it's important that we understand that Judas is not just some character out there and we shame him and we have disdain for him. But if we're not careful, we can be him. And I want you to see what led up to his betrayal today. A perfect storm is a confluence of events that drastically aggravates a situation. In 1991, there were three different storms, storm systems that converged together in what is in history now known as the perfect storm. And it struck off the coast and it struck the coast of uh, the northeastern part of the U.S. into Nova Scotia. And uh, it it brought an enormous amount of fury. One buoy out in the ocean was recorded. It recorded a wave over 100 feet tall. Imagine that. In that storm, there was a sword-fishing boat, the Andrea Gale, which was sank, and they never, uh, they, I mean, they, they know that it was sank in that storm, and all six members of, of the crew were killed in that storm, and that became a best-selling book, and then a movie in the year 2000 called The Perfect Storm. And I want you to see this morning that what happens around Judas, leading up to Judas, Betraying Jesus, there is there are a series of events, a series of systems that all come together and bring him to the point of betraying his Lord. Let's look at this. Mark chapter 14, verse one. It was now two days before the Passover and the feast of unleavened bread. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth, meaning secretly and to kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. And while he was at Bethany, while Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon, the leper, he was as he was reclining at a table. A woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly, and she broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? And truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. I want to show you this morning, if we have time, I will try not to get bogged down in any of these storm systems that will lead to the perfect storm. But I want to show you five systems or five events that led to the perfect storm of Judas' betrayal of Jesus. Number one, it was the murderous intention of the religious leadership that was the first storm on the horizon. The murderous intention of the religious leadership. It was two days before Passover and they have had enough. The chief priests and the scribes have had enough and now they want to kill him. They know they can't do it publicly because the people will revolt. At Passover, the Feast of the Unleavened Bread, there was this nationalistic spirit. It would be like our July 4th and everyone came there and and there was this sense of just pride and overwhelming nationalism that just pervaded the crowd. And if they were to turn on Jesus and to arrest him and have him crucified, they would have turned into a mob very quickly. So they know they can't do that. So they're seeking a way to kill him privately. I don't know how, but they say not during the feast. I think it was their intention that they would wait until after the feast. But in the providence of God, God's sovereignty overruled their plan and he came to this time and we get this sense of urgency about what is happening. We are being carried along, not randomly, but at the very hand of the very direction of God. We come to Passover and Passover was the time where the people would come and and uh, and they would bring all of these animals and they would sell them all over the temple square and they would they would come together and they would sacrifice those. And it was it was the, the lamb dying in their place. It's ironic that here they want to wait till afterwards, but God's plan leads the Christ, the Lamb of God, to be killed in conjunction with Passover. So there is the perfect storm system. Number one, And I wonder, as I look at it, I thought, how does this apply then to us? Well, it applies in this way, the chief priests and the scribes, their intention Is not something that was unique only to them. You and I never need to get in the place where we think that everyone loves Jesus. Everyone loves Christianity. Everyone loves the church. In fact, we live in a day that is very much different from that. It used to be, I remember those days growing up, where the pastor of the church was revered in the community. He was looked upon as a leader in the community and respected and 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 everyone just wanted their children to to look to him and, and he be their example. It's not so anymore. There's been so much scandal and and all sorts of other things. And the pastor, the position of pastor has fallen out of that light. Sometimes for good reason, we should draw a lesson from this, their murderous intention that. It's not just pie in the sky for Christians, but there are people there are people all around us that hate Christianity. You understand that what it means is we we should not be surprised when we see it. And it's not simply those people that are out there making grand headlines and writing stories and blogs. But it's people that you live with, work across from all sorts of things. They hate Christ. So I don't know, that's, that may be strong. I think it's not strong enough. The spirit of this world is one of hatred, wanting to rid themselves of Christ. We should not be surprised, and we should be on our guard. Let me just take a time out and go off my notes for just a minute here. We need to be careful with what we listen to. With what we read. With what we watch on TV. Just because someone operates under the name of a Christian ministry does not mean that what they are preaching is true Christianity. We must be careful. There's a whole lot of adjusted gospel out there. There's a whole lot of kingdoms being built for themselves. And I think in doing that, I think there's a lot of people out there that while they may not say, I hate Jesus, what they are doing is they are going around him, wanting to rid their themselves of him so that they can have their own kingdom. So we cannot be surprised. We must be on our guard that there will always be this system of murderous intention of Christ, wanting to rid ourselves of it. Uh, storm system number two. System number two is this extravagant act of worship by Mary. Extravagant act of worship Verse 3 says that she came in the house She came to Jesus where he was reclining at the table And that's how they ate in those days The table was low to the ground And and the people would uh, come up to the table with an elbow Prop themselves up on usually their left arm at the table To where their head was close to the table Their feet would be extending away from the table And they could eat with their right hand And... um, The Bible here says that Mary came up to Jesus as he's reclining at the table. Probably the meal is over by now. She comes to the table and she brings this very expensive jar, this alabaster jar filled with ointment or perfume made of pure nard. This stuff was extremely expensive. It was very rare. It was only grown in the remotest part of what is the Himalayan mountains. And so it would take a lot to get to. And it was very expensive. The jar itself was very expensive. And Mary comes and the Bible says she comes to Jesus. No one expects it. It's a surprise. They're all sitting around the table. But she comes to Jesus, overwhelmed with who he is and what he has done. And somehow the spirit has led her to know what he will do. And she takes that jar and it's a jar that comes up into a small little neck. And she takes it and she breaks it. She breaks the top off of that jar and she goes to the head of Jesus. And the Bible says she pours it on the head of Jesus. This whole thing just just pours it on there. And then she lets her hair down in this particular day. A woman's hair was her glory. And for her to let it down was it would have been humiliating. It was it was so humbling for her to do. She kneels at his feet and she takes this the rest of this perfume and she washes his feet with it and she takes her hair and she just washes his feet. Well, this was too much to bear for some of those sitting around. I wonder, before I go to that, I wonder, as I thought through this, would she have performed this extravagant act of worship if she had not spent so much time sitting at his feet? Every time Mary is mentioned, this particular Mary, John's gospel says that it's Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus, that every time she is mentioned, she is mentioned as being at the feet of Jesus. And I wonder, would she have performed such an extravagant act of worship if she had not been at his feet, listening, taking in, soaking in all that he had to say and teach? Would she have known what he was about to go and do? See, Jesus had told His disciples repeatedly that He was going to the cross, that He was going to Jerusalem, where He would be arrested, where He would be crucified, where He would also be raised from the dead, but they ignored it. They rejected it. Somehow Mary knows. Would she have done such an extravagant act of worship if she had not spent so much time at His feet? And I think the application for us this morning is this. Does your worship seem flat? And I'm not just talking about in here when we gather together and sing songs. But is your following of Christ giving your life to him on a day in, day out basis, responding to what he has done? Does it seem flat and lifeless? Does it seem empty? Could it be? Could it be that you have not spent time at the feet of the Lord? You've not learned who he is and. What he has done, what he is doing. I think sometimes we come into this place and this is sort of the weekly culmination of a life of worship. And we gather together to sing songs and to give and to be fed. We come in this place and we try to manufacture this. There's no way Ethan can manufacture worship in you if you have lived apart from the Lord Jesus all week long. He can't come in and drum this thing up. We can point you to the gospel. We can point you to the scriptures, the truth of the overarching story of the Bible. We do that when we put the lyrics on the screen and we put verses down below because we want you to understand where this fits into God's history. But we can't produce worship in you. Worship is the outflow of one who is worshiping all along. It's a response to what God has done. And could it be that yours is lifeless, feels forced because you haven't spent much time in his his presence? Um, Does your following, uh, the other part of application that I, I saw in this, is when she comes and she brings this expensive gift, she breaks this jar. This is probably, the Bible says, about a year's wages. 300 denarii. It was about a denarii a day was what the average worker would earn. And so 300 denarii, this is a year's wages. Can you imagine that? I don't know what you make in a year, but do the math. Whether it's 25 or 30 or 40 or 50 or 60 or 70,000, whatever it is, do the math. This is what it cost her in her day. And she takes this thing and she breaks it and she pours it out on Jesus as an extravagant act of worship. And I couldn't help but to think, does my worship cost me anything? Not just coming in here and lifting my hands. But when Monday rolls around, and Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, does my following after Christ and wanting my life to be a worship service to him, does it cost me anything? Or is it all trite? Are y'all here? In 2012, don't you want your worship to count? To cost you something, it will, it will count as it's in Christ. But I would challenge you to say, what is it that's holding me back from going wholeheartedly after the Lord? What is it that's holding me back? Is it something that I give my time to? Is it something that I've wound up enslaved to? Does it cost you anything? Anything here, hers cost her courage to approach the table. It cost her the world's treasures. It cost her a year's wages. It cost her humiliation as she let down her hair and kneeled in front of all these men. What does your worship cost you? If your worship costs you nothing, then what does that say about how much he's worth to you? We We sacrifice for so many other things, don't we? We make sacrifices all the time. Some of you made sacrifices for about the last three months so that your kids can have Christmas, right? Your kids get up on, on Christmas morning and they tear the wrapping paper off the thing that you've sacrificed and saved for. And then they wind up playing with the box more than they play with the actual thing that you got them. You think, what did I do all this? For? What did I work all this overtime for? We sacrifice so that our kids can have straight teeth. We put braces on their teeth. Sometimes our kids sacrifice so that we can have what we want. We have coffee addictions. That was just a confession there. We have all these things that we sacrifice for these things. And what it does is when we sacrifice for these things, it shows that we value them. And when we come to our relationship with the Lord, with our Christianity, and it never costs us anything. All it is, is it just coming back and forth to a building and going from service to service. It never costs us anything. What it says is, to us and to the world, we must not value Christ very much. We hear stories of people leaving on mission and leaving everything they have behind and going to a foreign land and may never come back to the United States ever again. We think, what is the, it? These people are crazy. They're just fanatical. No, they're not fanatical. They just value Jesus. I'm not telling you that you have to pack up tomorrow and go to a foreign land to serve as a missionary. But what if God called you to that? What if he called you right here? Does your following Christ, does your worship cost you anything? So here is this. here is this system number two, the extravagant act of worship by Mary. There is the murderous intention of the of the religious leaders. There's this extravagant act of worship by Mary. And then third, the third system that comes converging together, this warm air and cold air coming together in the life of Judas. System number three is the revealing of the disciples misplaced priorities. The revealing of the disciples misplaced priorities in verses four and five. After Mary comes in and does this extravagant act of worship, there were some who said to themselves indignantly. Don't miss that word indignantly. They were indignant. She had just worshipped God and they became indignant. Why was the ointment wasted like that? That ointment could have been sold for as much as a year's wages and given to the poor. How dare she? The Bible goes on. It says that they scolded her. The word "scolded" there it gives the, it's the word picture of a horse snarling as it charges into battle. They became indignant around this table. How dare she do this? It's a waste, they said. And what they have done is they have pitted worshiping Jesus against helping the poor. And let me ask you this: Which should we be about, church in 2012? Should we be about worshiping Jesus or should we be about helping the poor? That's the wrong question. It comes from the wrong premise. The right question is, how do we do both? Wasn't it wasn't it Jesus who said, love the Lord your God with all of your heart, your soul, your mind and your strength? What do you follow that up with? Love your neighbor as yourself. And I think his his point is this, that when we get our priority right, when he is preeminent in our lives and everything else revolves around him, then serving the poor, loving the poor will flow out of that. It's not an either or people want to create this dichotomy and it's a false dichotomy. It's not either or it is both because of we have been loved by him. When he is our true priority, the poor won't have to worry. But when we make them our priority, we become obsessed with only ourselves. If we're not careful in 2012, if we're not careful to, to make him the central focus of all that we do, we can quickly become this benevolent organization that attempts to help people with their physical needs While never helping them with their greatest need. And all the while we can pat ourselves on the back and feel good about ourselves because of all the good that we are doing in our community. But if it doesn't flow out of hearts that love him above everything else, then all it is is charity. All it is is benevolence and it will do nothing for their soul. It will do nothing to bring more worshipers around the throne of our God. See, that's the goal of missions. The goal of missions is the worship of our God. It's not to alleviate physical suffering. It is to alleviate physical suffering so that they would see the love of God in Christ Jesus. Turn from their sin. Trust him alone and become disciples of Christ. So that they then would also go out and show the love of God in Christ Jesus to others. And the worship of God increases exponentially. Was her act of worship, was it wasteful? Is there any act of worship that can exhaust the glory of our God? Is there any act of worship that you or I could perform that would touch the depth of his glory? There's nothing that extravagant. What could you give up that would compare to what he has done, who he is? You give up an hour of TV, you give up a certain toy you want, you give up a certain hobby, you give up this or that. How is that comparable to him stepping out of heaven Taking on flesh, living a perfectly righteous life, going to your cross and my cross, dying in our place. How how does that compare? Am I alone in this? There is no act of worship that you will ever perform that will be too much. You ever gotten a gift and and you say, that's just that's just too much. That's just too much. I can't accept that. Well, in your case, that's true. But you can't ever give to God anything that he could rightfully say that's too much. He is the altogether worthy one. He is preeminent, whether you acknowledge it or not. He deserves all of our worship and our praise. And our right standing with him is not dependent on our doing this or doing that or sacrificing here or there. Our right standing is in what he has done alone. And that's what makes our worship really its never going to be enough. But he counts it as enough in Christ. Does that make sense. All right. So here's this third part of the storm. There's the murderous intention of the religious leaders. There's this extravagant act of worship. And he's watching this. And then there's this revealing of this misplaced priorities. And he, He's he's not the only one. It's not like Judas is the only one who indignantly here scolds her. He is one of many. There are more disciples that also said these things. And then system number four that comes together here is the humiliation of Jesus. Public rebuke. Had to have been humiliating. It might have been Judas that actually spoke up. There were others in the room that were thinking if they hadn't. Maybe they hadn't learned anything from watching the Pharisees interact with Jesus. But oftentimes the Bible says that they said this within themselves. They said this in their mind or in their heart. And Jesus knew what they were thinking. And here they're at the table with him and they're thinking these things. And Jesus knows what they're thinking. And he scolds them. He rebukes them. Jesus said, leave her alone. Why, Why do you trouble her? She's done a beautiful thing to me. And how humiliating this must have been. I mean, they were men. She was a woman. And that day, and that day, she was the outcast. Jesus has done more to liberate women than anybody else in history. And that day, though, she was an outcast on the same level as a slave. And here she is as a woman coming and they scold her and Jesus rebukes them. They were men. She was a woman. They were disciples. They were the disciples. They were the twelve. She was just a common follower. We don't know everybody that was there. It mentions it's at the home of Simon the leper. We don't know who he is. Presumably, he is a former leper who Jesus has healed. We don't know who else is there, though, but this has happened publicly and they've watched and maybe Judas was the one who spoke up and scolded her first, and others chimed in, and Jesus in front of everybody says, leave her alone. It had to be an embarrassing. You ever get your pride stepped on? Ever been called out in front of somebody? Thinking that you know what you're talking about and someone puts you in your place? This is just one more system that converges here on them. Sometimes God's words hurt. Sometimes the truth hurts. I remember when I was a teenager growing up in the youth group, uh, there was a a guy in our youth group. He was a little older than I was, a couple years older. His name was Ezra. Ezra was Ezra always wanted to be popular. He wanted to be in that group. I mean, he he was convinced that he was going to be the quarterback for the high school football team. We weren't a great high school football team. but We were pretty good. And Ezra was not an athlete. And he would come to church and church youth group before you would bring footballs and all that. And we'd throw them around and Ezra would always strut around like he was it. And he was going out for football that year and he was going to be the starting quarterback for the Sevier County Smoky Bears. And he was he was going to be it Well, one day. I mean, Ezra just, you know, Ezra kind of got on everybody's nerves. Well, one day he comes in and he's limping as he comes into church. And we said, Ezra, what what happened? he told us some story. He was playing basketball, turned his ankle or something. And then we later on the, the night goes through. He's limped all night. And as teenagers do, there began to be some horseplay. And we began to kind of wrestle around. And, and he, he was picking on our youth minister. My youth minister, his name was Wade Abercrombie. He was not very tall, but he could bench press about 450 pounds. He, he was he was like one muscle, you know, just and he was as was picking on him. Well, he had told Ezra, Ezra, you do that one more time and you're going to wish you hadn't. Well, Ezra did it one more time. And Wade just took him and turned him over and had him tied up in a knot and and it embarrassed him. His pride was damaged. Well, Ezra pops up and he just goes walking out. And as he gets down halfway down the hall, somebody calls out to him and says, Ezra, what about your ankle? The rest of the way down the hall he. <laughs> and he limped out. You see, sometimes the truth hurts. Sometimes we are Ezra. We think we have it all together, and we want everyone else to think we have it all together. We want everyone else to think that when it comes to Christianity, we're the starting quarterback. And in reality, we're Ezra. And sometimes the word of God will confront us. The words of Jesus will confront us and show us things that aren't right, that need to change by the grace of God, that we need to begin to work out as Philippians talks about. Now, question to you here today is, will you be receptive to that correction? Will you be submissive to the word of God or will you shun it? Will you reject it and walk out? See, here's all these storms coming together. The murderous intent of the religious leaders. there's this extravagant act of worship that he witnesses of Mary. There's this revealing of their misplaced priorities and the public rebuke of Jesus. And then system number five is the realization of unmet expectations. And this is what sent him over the top. He's witnessed all of this, experienced all of this. But then Jesus, in his public rebuke, after he says, leave her alone, she's done a beautiful thing to me. He goes on and he begins to talk for you always have the poor with you whenever you want. You can do good for them, but you will not always have me. Now, wait a minute. This is not what he wanted. He thought Jesus would always be there. He thought Jesus was going to be the one who would come riding in and defeat Rome once and for all and liberate them and restore them to this great sense of nationalistic pride. What do you mean, Jesus? You won't always be here. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. Jesus, burial. What do you mean, Jesus? You you can't die, Jesus. It's not in my plan, Jesus. And truly, I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, that what she has done will be told in memory of her. They've been slow to hear. For Three years now, he'd been telling them, we're going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to be arrested. They will crucify me. I will be placed in the tomb. But three days later, I will come out of the tomb. They've been slow to hear. They didn't want to hear it. What they wanted to hear was these Pagan Romans, you're going to deliver us once and for all, right? I mean, we're going to come in with swords drawn and we're going to run them out of town. Remember when they came into the garden? We'll see that in in just a couple of weeks where they come into the garden and Peter draws that sword and he swings it and he cuts off Malchus' ear. It reveals what they really thought, what they really had hoped for. They wanted Jesus to be this great political Messiah, and it didn't meet their expectations. When he began to talk about he wouldn't always be with them, he was going to die. He was going to go away. I can tell you without any reservation that God loves you. I can tell you without any reservation that he has proven it by leaving heaven and going to a cross in your place. I can tell you without any reservation, if you forsake your way and trust him alone, he will save you. I can tell you without any reservation, he will make you right with him and take you to heaven one day. I don't have any doubts about that. I'm confident in that. I can stand here 21st century, 37 years old and stand here in 2012 and tell you there is a heaven. And for those of you who have. Receive Christ as your savior, receive the gift of the gospel, you will go to heaven. I, I, no doubt. What I can't tell you is that before you do, that everything will work out just fine. I can't tell you that all of your expectations will be met. I can't tell you that Jesus is going to make every day of your life happy. I can't tell you that nobody's ever going to get sick. I can't tell you nobody's ever going to die. I can't tell you that you're never going to lose a job, never struggle with finances. I can't tell you any of that. I can tell you what he's done. I can tell you what he's going to do, but I can't make you any promises in between. I know that he will hold you and he will take you. But it may not meet your expectations. There's a whole lot of preaching today that says. If you'll just come to Jesus, everything will work out. I mean, your dog will never have an accident in the house ever again. You're going to get promoted tomorrow. Your wife is going to worship the ground you walk on. Your children will rise up and say you're the greatest father ever. There's a whole lot of preaching like that. The reality is it's just not so. Following Christ looks a whole lot more like going to the cross. Adoniram Judson, who was the first American missionary to the Far East, before leaving to go to India, he wrote to um, the woman that he wanted to marry. He wrote to her father asking for her hand in marriage. Uh, Her name was Anne, Anne Hasseltine. He wrote to Anne Hasseltine's father, Mr. Hasseltine, asking for her hand. And this is what he wrote. I have now to ask whether you can consent to part with your daughter early next spring. To see her no more in this world, whether you can consent to her departure and her subjection to the hardships and sufferings of missionary life, whether you can consent to her exposure to the dangers of the ocean, to the fatal influence of the southern climate of India, to every kind of want and distress, to degradation, insult, persecution and perhaps a violent death. Can you consent to all this? For the sake of him who left his heavenly home and died for her and for you, for the sake of perishing immortal souls, for the sake of Zion and the glory of God. Can you consent to all this in hope of soon meeting your daughter in the world of glory with the crown of righteous, brightened with the acclamations of praise with which shall redound to her savior from heathen saved through her means from eternal woe and despair? Imagine getting that letter. And this was not just, I'd I'd like to marry your daughter. Can you give her away never to see her again? Send her to foreign land where she may die violently for the glory of God. Imagine getting that letter. The father consented. The father gave her away. And some of you may be sitting there thinking, what does she have to think about this thing? Doesn't she get a vote? After her father consented. Anne wrote to one of her friends. This is what she wrote. I feel willing and expect, if nothing in Providence prevents, to spend my days in this world in heathen lands. Yes, Lydia, I have about this. Is, she's writing to Lydia. I have about come to the de- determination to give up all my comforts and enjoyments here, sacrifice my affection to relatives and friends and go where God in his Providence shall see fit to place me. We often think that to obey God, to be in his will, means that he will always protect us from suffering. But Anne resigned herself to give whatever it took. That whatever came her way, she would consider it to be necessary from the hand of a loving, almighty God. Indeed, Anne Hasseltine's decision to become Mrs. Judson... Proved fatal. She miscarried her first child. The second Roger died before his first birthday. And shortly after her third, Maria uh, was born and died of smallpox. Maria followed her to eternity before she was six months old. But her decision also proved to bear much fruit in all. She spent 14 years on the mission field before email lists and blogs. She wrote on, of her life on the mission field and her calling as a missionary's wife. Her letters were published in the United States. She translated the books of Daniel and Jonah into Burmese and Matthew into Thai. Her husband persevered with Anne at his side and after her death. Yes, it took him three years before he shared the gospel with his first Burmese. Another year before he dared to preach in a public meeting. After a decade, he had only 18 converts. He was still far away from his goal of 100 But he pressed on, and in the end, not only did he compile an English Burmese dictionary, but he translated the New Testament into Burmese. Instead of hitting to his goal of 100 converts, he planted 100 churches with 8,000 converts. His dear Anne only saw the beginnings of this great work, but she was always there for him. When he was imprisoned for 17 months, she lived alone in a shack outside the prison so she could care for him. She was all In, as they say in the poker world, only for the gospel. I wonder if you and I could say in 2012, I I talked with somebody yesterday who said 2011 was just a really hard year. We're glad to see 2011 go. It may be your sentiments today. But I wonder today if you could say on the very first day of 2012, whatever comes my way in 2012, I will embrace it as the will of God for my life. I will give my life to the glory of God. I will sacrifice much so that he is glorified much. This perfect storm is brewing all around. Judas. There's this religious leaders on the outskirts. They're not far away. They've not been far away the entire time Jesus has walked the planet. They are. Plotting and scheming to murder Jesus. In this room, Mary comes in and she extravagantly breaks this jar of very expensive perfume and worships the Lord Jesus through it. Anoints his body for burial. As they scold her, it reveals where their priorities truly are and Jesus rebukes them publicly. And then the last straw is Jesus reveals to them That their expectations will not be met. All of this converges together and it's then and only then that Judas gets up from the table and he goes out and he goes to the religious leaders and he agrees with them to betray Jesus. I think you and I need to learn from this, not simply that Judas was someone that we don't want to emulate, but we need to look at it and say, all these things are going on all around us all the time. And if we are not careful, we can wind up just like Judas. Now, you may be here today and you may be a believer and some of you may be saying, but Judas wasn't a believer. You're right. He was never a believer. He was a fake disciple. He played the part. He looked the part he was close to Jesus but he was never he never belonged to Jesus one of the greatest tragedies that could ever happen in your life the greatest tragedy is for you to come and sit in service and hear the preaching of the gospel and hear it and know it but walk away unchanged walk away convinced that you are a disciple and the reality is you don't belong to him You may be one of the ones that he's talking about when he said me will say to me in the end, Lord. Didn't we feed the hungry in your name? Didn't we go to the prisons in your name? Didn't we do this and do that for you? And Jesus will say to them, depart from me. I never knew you. There is a strong possibility, probably a reality That there are people sitting in these chairs that sit maybe in these chairs every single week. You have along the way convinced yourself that you are a disciple. You've convinced other Christians that you are a disciple. Notice none of the other disciples, when they, when, when Jesus said, one of you will betray me, they didn't know who he was talking about. It wasn't as if Judas was living this God awful life and it was obvious who it was going to be. Some of you may be good people. Compared to the rest of us. It doesn't mean that you are truly his. Today, I would invite you to turn from your sins. Admit that your condition is one of still being lost. And you need a savior. You need to throw yourself on the mercy of Christ today. There's other others of you here, though, today that you are believers, you are Christians, you know it. There's also these dangers are ever present with us as well. There are people that hate Jesus all around us. There are people that are extravagant in their worship and it makes us jealous. We misplace our priorities all the time. We are rebuked by the word of God. Sometimes our expectations are not met. And if we're not careful, even those who are believers will betray Christ. He will not stop holding on to you if you're truly his. But We must be on our guard. I would invite you this morning. To commit yourself to the Lord again. To say, Jesus, in 2012. Forget 2012. This week, Jesus. Lord, I want to live for you. I want to give everything I have for you, God. I don't want to I don't want to ever be caught up in this perfect storm and be carried away in doing something that I really don't want to do. God, would you protect me? Help me to be watchful and on guard. And use my life for your glory. Let's pray together. For Jesus, I pray this morning, as serious as this text is and As serious as it has been on the very first Sunday, first day of the year. God, I pray that, Lord, that for those in this room today who have never received you as Lord. God, that today, that today salvation would come to them. You would call them out of death into life. God, that they would turn from their sins and trust you. God, we need you. God, in your mercy, God, I pray that you would do that. God, for Christians all over this room, God, I pray that we would lay aside our expectations and all of all of this other junk. And God, that we would today say, God, whatever comes, whatever comes, God, use my life for your glory. God, I pray that you would guard us this year, guard us this week, guard us today. As we strive to live for you, God, we don't I heard. Terry say today, God, we don't live striving for the victory. Thanks to Jesus, we live from the victory. And God, I pray that you would help us to live for you. It's in your name that I pray. Amen. Ethan's going to lead us in a time of reflection and response. We reflect on what we've heard. We reflect on the scriptures. Maybe you've thought about it all through the service. You know what God's asking you to do. But maybe there's a specific action step that you need to take today. If that involves you coming and talking to me, I'm here at the front. If it involves you coming and kneeling across the front or bringing someone with you. If it involves you going out of this place and doing something outside of these walls. We want you to think about that. Ask God what it is that he would have you to do. And then, Ethan, will lead us to stand and respond. You respond to whatever God has called you to do. Don't harden your hearts. It's possible for you to harden your hearts, say no to God, and walk out of this place. And I would challenge you not to do that. Say yes to what God is leading you to today. Ethan, you lead us.